Let's open out our Bibles to Mark chapter number 12. Mark chapter number 12. What a blessing to have you here with us this morning at Walridge Baptist Church. Isn't it good to be able to come be with God's people? Amen. And uh, what a blessing that is. I trust that you're here not by accident or happenstance. You're here by providence. I believe that uh, that our life is ordered by providence. Not to say we don't have a decision, but just say that God uh, knows what He's doing in our life in ordering things. And I trust that you're here by providence. I believe God has a word for you this morning. Mark chapter number 12, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 28. Mark chapter number 12, verse number 28. The Word of God says, And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask him any question. And Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? But David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, Till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord, and whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you for this opportunity. Lord, we know it is an opportunity that a great many people were not given today. But we, Lord, have been blessed to be able to gather here in your house, to hear these wonderful songs, to be stirred, uh, to bear witness our spirit with the Holy Ghost and Father, to worship you. And I pray we'd not take it lightly. I pray that this morning now as we approach this most hallowed time, as we sit at the table and feast upon your word, I pray that we come with hungry hearts, hungry spirits. Lord, we know that those that hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. So, Lord, help us come hungry for the truth of the word of God. And, Lord, help us to receive it as it is good meat, strong meat, healthy meat, profitable meat unto our spiritual nourishment. And we'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, if there's any under the sound of my voice lost, and it's not unthinkable, even here in the Bible Belt, even here in East Tennessee, uh, that there could be someone under the sound of my voice in a room this size, uh, that they may have religion, but they have no relationship with you. I pray that if that is the case, that the Holy Ghost would do the work on their hearts most necessary to show them their need of Christ, to show them the great love wherewith you've loved them, to show them, Lord, that you're not you're not an enemy, that they're, you're their advocate, you're their savior, that you love them and care about them, and that they, Lord, might believe upon you and be eternally saved. Lord, we love you and thank you for all that will take place, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The past few Sunday mornings, we've been preaching along a similar thought in each of the messages, and and we have titled these messages uh, in this way. We've called them transcendental truths. The Lord Jesus had a wonderful way 
in the way that he taught, in the way that he answered men, in the way that he spoke. In fact, one of the things they noticed about the Lord is that no man ever spake like this man does. He spoke with authority. He spoke with insight. He spoke as though he could look through a man's uh, chest and see his heart and see his soul. You know why that is? Because he could look through a man's chest and look through his heart and see his see his soul and see what he thought and what he felt and how he believed. I'm glad he still does that this morning. Amen. Uh, listen, you can hide from the preacher, you can hide from your spouse, you can hide from church folks, you can hide from but you can't hide from God. He knows who and what you are and who and what I am and. I'm thankful for that. The Lord Jesus, He would look beyond, and when He answered these questions, very often it would be someone seeking to trip Him up, seeking to make Him look foolish or discredit Him. He would answer in such a way that was that was marvelous. And, and His answer would transcend the question that was asked. It would go beyond what was asked. And very often it would get to the heart of what was really being inquired about. How many of you know, and those of you that are married, you know, that sometimes you'll get asked a question, but the question you're asked ain't the question you're supposed to answer. Amen. You ever been there before? It's okay. Uh, you're here in public. She can't kill you. Amen. You can go ahead and testify. There's plenty of witnesses. You know, sometimes what people ask is not really what they're asking. And very often in these situations, what was being asked was not really what they were asking. And the Lord answered what they, what they needed to know, not always what they were asking. And so the, these, these conversations were, were transcendental. And we've marked them by about three different qualities. And I'll share them with you very quickly. A transcendental truth was given, number one, to elevate the conversation. In other words, he would go beyond what was being asked and get to the heart of it. Number two, a transcendental truth was often given to expound a deep idea or a deep truth. In most of these, we find the Lord revealing something that is not surface. It's it's not shallow. It's not something that's obvious. He's getting to the heart of the matter. And then very often he would use this to expose his enemies. Because most of the time when they asked him questions, and that's the case with the lawyer, the scribe that's mentioned here in our passage this morning, Matthew's account says that when he asked the Lord this question about the first and greatest commandment, that he asked him this tempting him. He didn't want to know the truth. He wanted to try to disprove the truth. You know, there's a lot of people walking around today. That's why they ask questions. They don't ask questions to get the answer. They ask questions to disprove the answer that is acceptable. Uh, Very often they're disingenuous. And so the Lord would expose His enemies. Over the past few weeks, we've talked about several topics that the Lord did this with. Tribute money, for instance, and judgment and authority and relationships. And this morning, I want to take a few moments and preach to you on a transcendental truth about law. Now, I'm careful in how I say that for this reason, because it is true that the topic at hand in this passage is the law, meaning the Old Testament system of statutes and of worships and of ceremony that is set forth from Mount Sinai and is recorded in the Word of God. But I believe what the Lord really gets to goes beyond merely the Old Testament law. You know, the Bible says in Romans uh, chapter number 2, let me read this to you as a, as a premise to frame the passage. In verse 12, Paul says this of Romans chapter 2. He says, As many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. In other words, he's saying the law was given to the Jews, but even the Gentiles who don't have the law, when they sin, God's still going to judge them. 
He says, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law. And, you know, we see this all over the world. You can go to places that have never heard of the Ten Commandments where they still believe it wrong to murder. They still believe it wrong to steal. They still believe it wrong to commit adultery or to covet. Not every society is that way. But a great many of them that have never read the Ten Commandments, they just know in their heart, in their spirit, God programmed it into them to understand that something is wrong with these actions. It says, For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Now you might say, well, preacher, why would you read that this morning? Because if we're not careful, we'll dismiss the conversation in Mark chapter 12. We'll say, well, he's talking about the Old Testament law and I'm under grace and I'm a Gentile and I was never under the law. But he gets to the heart beyond just the Old Testament law. He uses that as a framework, but he gets really to the idea of law itself. Now, the Old Testament law that is at hand here basically had three areas. Uh, it had the ceremonial law. For instance, there were certain tenets about uh, what the priests were to wear and how sacrifices were to be given. And we could say that the ceremonial law revealed to us how God desires to be worshipped, how He wants men to approach unto Him. Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, we don't do those things today. That's true, because the true light now shines. There's no need for the shadow. Now we worship Him in the truth and knowledge of Christ. The things that the Old Testament law was a picture of, we live in the reality of. So there's a better way of worship now. Then there was the moral law. Uh, In other words, a person wasn't to kill somebody or bear false witness or murder somebody. And we might describe the moral law in this way. It revealed to us how we can love one another what love looks like, how love should appear. And then there was the societal law. That was the law that helped Israel run as a nation. For instance, if you were living in Israel and and you and your neighbor both had an ox and your ox killed their ox, guess what? You owed them an ox. Amen? That was part of societal law. It's what allowed the government of Israel to function. And so when we look at the Old Testament law, the ceremonial law has been abolished in the cross of Calvary. We don't have to keep those things anymore. Uh, Christ took the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that was contrary to us. He took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross. The societal law, while I do think it's good in some respects for a society to model that societal law, I think it'll make for an orderly society. We as Gentiles, we're not bound under uh, the government that was instituted at, at Sinai. So I'm not saying it's completely irrelevant, but we understand as Gentiles that we are placed in a society that God expects us to respect and acknowledge the rules and authority of. The moral law, however, we find to be just as valid today as it was then. And it's interesting because the Ten Commandments, every one of them except keeping the Sabbath day, all the rest of them were reaffirmed in the New Testament. In other words, what was right when God gave it before is still right today as it pertains to moral law. So when this lawyer, and the Bible uses the term lawyer, it's not a lawyer like we think of, but uh, it's a man that was versed in the Old Testament law. He comes to Jesus and seeks to trip him up. And he asks him this basic question. He says in verse 28, which is the first commandment of all? In another place, in Matthew's account, he asks, which is the great commandment in the law? And I think he said both of those things 
But what was he really asking? You know, when a person asks a question, it it reveals something about their perspective. It reveals something about the way they viewed the world. So what was his perspective of law and of the Old Testament law in particular? He was really asking two things. Let me say it this way. Number one, he was asking, which is the most important commandment? Now, the Old Testament and even the New Testament reveals there are weightier matters of the law. There are, I don't believe God uh, looks at someone telling a lie in the same way that He looks at someone massacring 40 people. I, I believe that God looks at somebody that has been raised without any light of truth of the Bible and He will not judge them as harshly as He would somebody like you or me that was raised in the buckle of the Bible belt and has known better since we've been in diapers. I believe that God is incremental in the way that He punishes sin and and in sins themselves. But what He asks here reveals that He viewed the law as a collection of rules of incremental importance. He was saying, Lord, if I'm going to ignore every law and only keep one, which one should I keep? He viewed it as this collection of rules of incremental importance as opposed to a collection of guidelines laying out the pattern for righteousness. I would say the second thing He's asking is which is the most impactful commandment. In other words, he's saying, which commandment is going to most shape my life? That's what he means when he says, which is the great commandment of the law? Which is the one that's going to change the way I live more than anything? And that reveals to us that he viewed the law as a system for the regulation of the external instead of the revelation of the internal. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, he viewed the law as something that God thundered down from heaven to coerce men in how to live and how to behave, when in fact the Old Testament law was given to show forth what was already on the inside. Paul sums it up pretty clearly, I think, in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. He says, He is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Paul had a pretty good handle on this. And he understands the intent and purpose of law. Now, I want to give you three thoughts this morning, very quickly before we close, that I think summarize what the Lord deals with in this passage. Let me say a word first off this morning about the essence of law. What is law? In and of itself, we have all kinds of laws. There are, of course, laws of physics and laws of, of science. There are laws of, of, of polite society, certain things that you do, certain things that you don't do. There are uh, laws of governmental enforcement. There are certain things that are illegal here in the state of Tennessee or here in the United States of America. A law is basically a precept or a statute given from someone of authority to elicit certain response in the person it's given to. So we as Gentiles, we have the law of God written on our conscience, on our minds. The Jews had it beyond just on the conscience. Unto them was committed the Word of God, the oracles of God. They had it written out in animal skins and in ink. But what is law at its very heart? Let me say three things about why a law is given. And I think this will inform really what the Lord says here. Number one, let me say that law is given to reveal. When I tell my little boy to do something, I'm trying to reveal a couple things. Number one, let me say that I think law is given to reveal the personality and will of the lawgiver. When you tell someone to do something, you're telling them something about yourself. 
You're telling them the things you value. You're telling them the things that you find important. You're telling them your desires. You're telling them something about who you are. Isn't it interesting when the Lord gives this first commandment, what does He say? It's out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You know what the Old Testament law did? It told us about what God values. It told us that God values life. Amen? Thou shalt not kill. It tells us, hey now, that God values individual property rights. Somebody say amen right there. Because He says, Thou shalt not steal. If everybody owns everything, you can't steal. So he respected, I'm going to say it again, he respected individual property rights. He believed what a man owned, a man owned and belonged to him. He values marriage. He says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, thou shalt not commit adultery. There were certain things that God valued. And any law that's given, it reveals something about the character and nature. It's one of the things that's so troubling about our country. It seems like every time we turn around, there's another abomination, another wickedness, another vileness that the government is legalizing. What does that tell you? That tells you how we as a society are changing. So the law is given to reveal the personality and will of the law giver. But let me say number two. I believe the law was given also to reveal the perversion and weakness of the lawbreaker. I'll give you an example of this. Have you ever seen a piece? I was walking through a store. I'll just tell it this way. I was walking through a store one day. I may get in trouble here, Brother Fred. Have you ever noticed that a box of suppositories says do not take orally? What does that say about us as a society? When they have to put on a box of suppositories, do not take orally. Now, that tells me that probably 99%, Brother Tim, of society has never opened up a box of suppositories and popped one in. That tells me some old boy somewhere. (laughs) Rules reveal, Brother Ken, the propensity of a person to break a law. You see, the Bible says that the law is given not to the righteous, but to the unrighteous. You know why we have speeding laws? Because we all got lead foot. You know know why we have laws against stealing things? Because we're all a bunch of greedy people. Some of y'all woke up, or uh, woke up, listen to me. Some of y'all, some of y'all need to wake up. Some of y'all growed up in a society where you didn't lock the door. Because you didn't have to lock the door. Now, you gotta lock the door, you gotta deadbolt it, you better have a big old dog. You see, a, a law is given, and it reveals the propensity of a person to break that law. You know, the law, the Old Testament law was given for that same reason. It was given to show that men are unrighteous. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 7. Talking about the Old Testament law, he says in verse 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. In other words, awareness, consciousness. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, Paul said, I found to be unto death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding 
sinful. You know, I've never seen a lawbreaker look happy for the most part. Whenever they take those pictures and they're standing there with a license, they always look upset. They always look mad. They always look disturbed. They always look troubled. But most of those people would tell you it's not their fault. It's the fault of society for having the law in the first place. Paul says, hey, listen, the problem is not with the law. The problem is with us as lawbreakers. And he says, you know, there was a time that I wasn't aware that I was as deep and and dark a sinner as I am. But whenever I heard the commandment of God, I realized a lot of the stuff that I was doing was wrong. It was sinful. I became aware of my sin. You see, the law is given to reveal the perversion and the weakness of the law. Give her a reminder that we can't live righteously. So the law was given to reveal. Number two, the law is given to restrain. Now that's pretty obvious. The law is given to keep folks from doing things that they ought not do. Most of the laws, or at least our run-ins with those laws, are related to this concept. Uh, whenever we're driving down the road and we see those red and blue lights come on, the first thing we do is look at our speedometer. Some of y'all, the first thing you may do is put your foot on the gas. I don't know. But usually the first thing we do is look at that speedometer. Because you know what we're thinking? Well, I went over the speed limit. The law is given there to restrain us. I've often thought to myself, once you hate to be a cop and have to drive slow everywhere you went. <laughs> I was driving down the road the other day. I ain't even got time for this, but that's okay. I was driving down the, the road the other day and saw, and a cop pulled out behind me. And I, I mean, I didn't have, I, I, they ain't looking for me, as far as I know. First thing I did was slow down. And I thought, man, I'd hate to be a cop <laughs> and have to drive slow everywhere. Don't you know they get frustrated? Don't you know they sit back there and get, go, go on, I won't pull you over. The law is given to restrain, to keep us from doing things we shouldn't. Uh, God gave this promise in Exodus 23 about the law. After He had given uh, the first portion of the law, He said, Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. In other words, God said, I'm sending an angel before you, and his purpose is to enforce this law, because this law is here to what? Keep you in the way. Law is given to restrain. Number three, I would say law is given to regulate. To regulate. In other words, not just to keep us from doing things that we shouldn't do, not just to prevent behavior, but law is given to promote behavior. It's given to mandate us to do some things. I'll give you an example. Uh, here, uh, maybe in the next month or, or month and a half, whenever it is, uh, you're going to pick up your phone, you're going to call H&R Block. Or you might go down to the Walmart if you're a reckless man and buy the TurboTax. Amen? Some of y'all, I, listen, I know some of y'all, some of y'all take too many liberties. Amen? But uh, or, or you'll call an account. You're not doing that because you just, you know, like got money you need to burn. You're not doing that because you just got some free time and love hanging out with the people at Jackson Hewitt. You're doing that because the government mandates that you do that. Uh, You see, it's given to promote certain behavior. And the Old Testament law was given for this purpose as well, to, to promote behavior. God said in Exodus chapter 19, before He gave the law, He said, Now therefore, if ye will obey My voice indeed and keep My covenant, then ye shall be what? A peculiar treasure unto Me above all people. For all the earth is Mine. Ye shall be unto Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. God said, I'm giving you this law so that you'll live differently, so that you'll conduct yourself differently, so that you will behave differently differently. 
You see, when we talk about the Old Testament law, the Old Testament law is a fit example, but we're really talking about law in general. Our conscience is given to elicit all of these very same things, to show us that we are weak, that we are infirm, that we cannot be righteous and live righteous in and of ourselves. It's given to stop us from doing things that we know we shouldn't do. It's given to encourage us to do things that we know are right to do. And this lawyer says, all right, Lord, we've got this law, all these 600 and some odd commandments, which is the greatest? Consider the Lord's answer. He does not sidestep the question. He gives an answer. It's found, uh, the quotes are in two different places in the Word of God, although the Lord gives it to him in one quote. He says in verse 29, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is light, namely this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He says there is none other commandment greater than these. In the Lord's words, he says, the Old Testament law, but law in general, the exertion of God's mind and will into human affairs, the fact that God deals with us. You understand that all law, as it relates to to natural law and to spiritual law, all of that is God dealing with His creation. God could have created us and stepped back and let us just float through space. But God deals with us. What is the purpose? The Lord says all of that dealing is geared towards about three things. Let me notice them with you. This is the epitome of the law. Why is God dealing with humanity? And what should our response be to that dealing? Well, first he reveals a truth about the Lord. In Matthew's account, Matthew does not record this portion of the quote. But Mark does record it. And indeed, it is found in Deuteronomy chapter number 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. When it was recorded here in the New Testament, it did not retain that capital L-O-R-D that it denotes Jehovah, the God of Israel. But when it was first given in Deuteronomy chapter number 6, that's how it's presented to us, that capital L-O-R-D. Now, how many of you know that God has a bunch of names in the Old Testament? The first way that God's ever mentioned in the Bible is as Elohim, God. Uh, That is a generic name for God. That was the name even the pagans used when they talked about God. And when the Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's the name that's given, Elohim. It's a generic name. It is a descriptor. But when the Bible reveals Him as capital L-O-R-D, that's the name Jehovah. And that's the the national name of God. That is a personal name. That is a name that only the God of Israel carry. And the Lord Jesus, He quotes this and He says, listen, if you're ever going to understand the law, if you're ever going to understand what God's doing in this world, if you're ever going to understand why God's interested in His creation, if you're ever going to understand what God is doing in His plan of redemption, the first thing is you're going to have to understand the truth about the Lord. What does a law reveal to us? Well, it reveals a couple things. One, it reveals that there is an authority. Right? Reveals that there is an authority. Much of the political pain in our country has been caused due to an imbalance that has been, I believe, manipulated into our political system. Our founders set up our country in a very distinct way. In a way that preserved individuals' rights and in a way that prohibited the government from being able to grow to a level of being tyrannical. It was designed that way. And one of the things, or several things that was given uh, to cause that, but one of the things that was created is that the states were to have autonomy. 
And the idea behind that was that if there was ever a place where the federal government and the state government were at odds, the state government should always have the right of way. This was done to preserve the autonomy of the states. Now, sadly, we've completely done away and stripped our, our constitutional system of that, of, of that uh, aspect. But the reason for that is this, because they didn't want conflicting authorities in daily life. There ought to be a singular authority as it relates to what has the right of way in our life. You see, the very presence of a law implies there is an authority. There is a law giver. A law giver. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. Hey, listen, this has been, by the way, one of the great... Uh, the, the great rallying points of creationism and of and of deism and of the belief that there is a a, a God that exists is there's laws of nature. Where did those laws come from? Our DNA has information in it, has laws. Where did that come from? If there's laws, listen, there must be a law giver. Denotes the presence of an authority. The first thing to understand: Hey, listen, there is a God. There is a God. He has authority. I'm going to answer to him. You're going to answer to him. It it denotes a couple things. One, the singularity of God. Uh, Our Lord is one Lord. Not a bunch of gods. If you walk through this world believing that all roads lead to heaven, you're going to walk around as confused as a termite and a yo-yo. Nothing's going to make sense. Until you nail down the fact that, hey, if there is a God, there has to only be one God. If there is a God, there has to be only one God. For Him to truly be God. The singularity of God. Number two, the identity of God. He says the Lord Jehovah. To understand the law and to understand God's interest in you, you have to understand that there is a God and you've got to know who He is. Can I tell you something? Your life's never going to have purpose until you recognize that there is a God until you know who He is. Until you know who He is. This idea that all roads lead to heaven, that all gods are the same, I mean, that's ludicrous on the face of it. How how could the gods uh, that the Muslim worship be the same as the gods described in the Word of God? How how could how could the uh, the human institutions of the papacy uh, be identical uh, to the holy priesthood that's described in the Pauline epistles? I, I mean, you could go down the line of the various cults and, and and isms in the world. And listen, neighbor, this is a very simple truth, but I want you to get it: things that are different are not the same. Things that are different are not the same. The Lord Jesus said of Himself, I am the way, the truth, the light. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. You can't call yourself a Christian and claim, you can't call yourself a Bible believer and claim that every road leads to heaven. Because to do so is antithetical to the teachings of the Word of God. Hey, listen, it starts with acknowledging that truth about the Lord, who He is, what He is, how He lives, how how he identifies himself, the singularity of God, the identity of God. But then he reveals something in the commandment he gives. He says that the first commandment, the greatest commandment, first you've got to begin knowing that there is a God and knowing who that God is. He's the God of Israel. He sent his son Jesus Christ to die and be made a ransom for your sins and mine. And he rose again on the third day in power and in glory. And salvation's only through him. You can only get to God through Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that the law brings us to. The second is the truth about love. He says in verse 30, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Isn't that interesting? When you go through the Old Testament law, you hear a lot of precepts and regulations and and rules and statutes. And yet when the Lord Jesus summed up the Old Testament law, He said, I sum it up in one word, and it's the word love. He reveals something about what love is, how love is expressed, And how love interacts with 
law. You know, we keep laws because we love certain things. You're going to pay your taxes here in, in a month or so if you've not done it already. You know why? Because you love not being in jail. You love your freedom. You love your home. You don't want anyone to take it from you. Uh, we, we, the reason laws, you see, when a man has nothing to lose, that's when he becomes lawless. The thing that motivates and gives force to law is love. And Christ reveals a few things. One, he reveals that love is the force of the law. What motivates us to, to live for God? What motivates us to accept the truth of God? What motivates us to conduct ourselves in a certain way? is love. The common strain in both these commandments, he says, love the Lord thy God, love thy neighbor. The common strain is love. This was foreign to this man. He thought that the common strain was fear. But Christ says, no, if fear is your motivating factor in obeying law, you're missing what law was given for. The force of the law is love. Let me say he also reveals that love is the foundation of the law. So what do you mean? Well, in Matthew's account, when he answers uh, gives this answer. He, he ends it this way. He says, on these two commandments, love the Lord thy God, love thy neighbor's house. On these two commandments, he said, hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, when the Lord gave the law in the Old Testament, and when the Lord exerts His will in your life and in mine, He's not doing it out of hate. He's not doing it out of pettiness. He's not doing it out of covetousness. He's doing it out of love. Now, us parents can understand that, right? Very little of the things that I say to my children do I say because I want to. You know why? Because most of the talking I do to my kids is, Hush, get off that. Get that out of your mouth. What's the matter with you? Get away from that. How many times have I told you? I'm not saying that because I want to, because I just, that's what I enjoy. I thought that when I was a kid. I thought that's what my parents, that was their hobby. I thought their hobby, they were, they were, they were Olympic medalists in griping. That's what I thought. Now I got kids, I realize that's what you gotta do or they'll burn the world down. But it's motivated out of love. I love them. I want what's best for them. God in giving Law, He gave it out of love. All of it hung upon these two things. You know why? Because if a man didn't love God, and if a man didn't love his neighbor, there's no amount of legislation or regulation that could make him live in a right way. This scribe said, which law do I need to keep? And if I keep this law, then I've got the main of it. The Lord said, I'll answer that. If you love the Lord, you'll naturally do everything else. You know what that reveals to us? That love is the fulfillment of the law. The fulfillment of the law. You know, the, the Old Testament gave 600 and some odd commandments, but the Lord summarized the commandments of, of the New Testament, of the New Covenant in this way. In John chapter 13, He said to His disciples, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are My disciples, if ye have love one to another. John expanded on this idea in 1 John chapter 2. He said, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you. Now, that might sound a little counterintuitive. The Lord said, I'm writing a new commandment. John said, I write no new commandment. It's going to be real confusing because in about three uh, words, he says, a new commandment I write unto you. But listen carefully to what he says. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which you had from the beginning. When John wrote this, he's talking about the Old Testament law. He says, the old commandment, 
is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you. Okay, John, you said there's no new commandment. You said the commandment is the old commandment. But he said, no, no, it's the old commandment in a new perspective, in a new covenant. He says this, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. In other words, if a man has the law within him, the law of God written on his hearts, and if he lives and walks in that truth, then he will do naturally, or we might say supernaturally, but by grace he will conduct himself in a way that is in keeping with the truth of the Old Testament. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Yet I find in this passage there's another thing that's revealed. To understand fully the law, you have to understand the truth about the Lord. There's one God, and He's the God of Israel, who sent His Son Jesus Christ to die for our sins. You have to understand the truth about love, that love is the force and foundation and fulfillment of the law, that if you try to live for God without loving God, you won't get very far. And if you try to love your neighbor without first loving God and having the love of God shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Ghost, you won't get very far. And yet I find in this passage, painfully so, that there is a truth about limitations. Now listen to how the the man responds to the Lord. Verse 32, The scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself, is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, that's pretty good. He says, Lord, you're exactly right. You've summed up the Old Testament law. You know what the problem was? This man had come not with love in his heart. This man had come not seeking sincerely the Lord. He had come with spite. He had come with deceit in his heart. He had come with guile in his heart. So for all that this man knew of the law, listen now, the law couldn't change him. You know, I find in this passage a truth about limitations. Limitations. The Lord answers this way. He says in verse 34, looks at this man. He says, thou art not far from the kingdom of God. Let me tell you something. It's a good thing to be not far from the kingdom of God. It's better than being far from the kingdom of God. But it ain't the same as being in the kingdom of God. Christ looked at a man that was not far from the kingdom of God in John chapter 3 that had come seeking him by night. And he said, except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. See, the truth is, the law, for all that it was, for all the glory, for all the righteousness, for all the virtue in it, it had limitations. There were certain things the law could not do. You say, what are they? Well, let me give you a couple of them. One, for all that the law could do, there was no propitiation in the Old Testament law. Now, that's a big old $10 theologian's word. But what it basically means is this. In the Old Testament, they give sacrifices. And the purpose of those sacrifices was to cover a man's sin. But you know the funny thing about it? All those sacrifices, the billions of gallons of animal blood that rolled off that temple mount over generation after generation, never could they take away sin. They could cover sin. But listen to what Paul says in Hebrews 10, verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. Now listen, this is just good old Bible sense right here. Listen to what he says. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? 
If, uh, if those sacrifices could take away sin, then you'd imagine they would give those sacrifices and at a certain point they'd quit giving them. Right now I'm paying on my house for the next, I don't know, like 300 years. But there is an end date. You can look at that amortization schedule and, and there is an end date. But the sad truth is, as they tried to pay their sin debt, there was no end date. You know why? Because they could not take away sin. And Paul says it explicitly. He says in verse number 3, But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. Now somebody's going to say, well, that's good, preacher. But I ain't never offered a bull or a goat. No, you offer the sacrifices of your Gentile conscience. You know what those sacrifices are? Good works, charity, baptism, church membership. Just good old do-goodedness. See, those are the sacrifices we give in accordance with our consciences. Gentiles, can I tell you something? It's just as impossible for your sacrifices to take away sins as it was for their sacrifices to take away sins. Because they had this system of sacrificial worship, their good works were embodied by the sacrifices they gave. But the good works in and of themselves couldn't save a man. The Bible's very clear. At the end of the day, no matter how many good works we do, and I'm going to give you a verse or two about it here in a second, and then we'll preach. No, I'm joking. Amen. You think I'm going to miss lunch? (laughs) No matter what good works you do, no matter how many good works you do, they are just as futile in the paying of your sins as these sacrifices were. The law, whether it be the Old Testament law of commandment or the Gentile law of conscience, has no ability to deal with a man's sins. You can turn over a new leaf. You can make a bunch of promises that you'll probably break. You can try to to, to reform yourself. You can try to fix yourself. But what are you going to do about your old sin? What are you going to do about that baggage you're hauling around? Where's it going to go? At the end of the day, the law, for all that it could do, it had no propitiation. Number two, you know, problem with the law, it had no transformation. <laughs> it's funny what this man says. He answers and he says, yep, Lord, you're right. And then you know what he did? He turned around and went back to living the same wicked life he had lived before. He knew the law. His job was to know the law. He knew the law inside and out. In fact, they pushed this fellow forward because a few minutes earlier, the Sadducees, which were another group of religious folks in, in Jerusalem, had come up to try to stump the, they played stump the Savior. And the Lord just showed them to be fools. And so they look at each other and them fellows look around and they said, well, let's send Jeff up. I don't know what his name was. But they said, they said, well, let's send Jeff up. He knows a lot about the law. They sent him forward because his business was to know the law. This man ate the law, breathed the law, slept in the truth of the law. And yet, for all that it was, could not change him. You know, at the end of the day, one of the problems with the law is it has no ability to address the heart, the nature, the sin nature. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. That's the new covenant. That's the new way of living. That's the Spirit of God living in you. Then he says this, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending His own Son. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. You know what the law could do? The law could tell a man what was right. The law could tell a man how to live. The law could tell a man when he was wrong. But the law could not change the way that man lived. In the same respect... 
You know, you've heard this saying before that all that the exception of the rule does is prove the rule. Every time we try to exert any kind of influence to God through get to heaven through our own righteousness, any time we try to get to heaven through our own righteousness, any time we try to go against the grain of our own nature and do something just believing it's going to please God and, and, and trying to work our way to heaven, you know all that proves? That proves that the way that we naturally live is displeasing to God. Else we wouldn't be trying to change our behavior. The law has no ability to transform a man. Can I just give you a couple words? Let me say, I wish that's all you'd given me about the end of the law. Christ closes with this statement. We often don't connect these two passages. But notice this word in the King James Bible. Verse 35, Jesus answered. The end of verse 34 says, no man after that dares to ask him any question. So what's he answering? He's answering the implied question. The implied question, he looks at that man and says, thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And that fellow just looks at him like a calf staring at a new gate. He doesn't know what to do. What's missing in this man's life? The Lord answers. Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? You see, these Pharisees, they believed that they were waiting on a Messiah that was going to come. And he would be the descendant of David and he would come and be a rightful heir that would set up an earthly kingdom and an earthly throne. Christ said, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. He didn't say from the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a literal kingdom. It's in heaven right now. One day Christ is going to set up that kingdom on earth. The kingdom of God is anything under the felt jurisdiction of God's authority. One time they asked Christ, they said, when is the kingdom of God? He said, the kingdom of God is within you. In other words, the kingdom of God is everything God is able to govern over effectually. You know what that means? People that have put themselves under the authority and jurisdiction of God. That's why a man has to be born again to see the kingdom of God is because until he's born again, that authority won't be felt in his life and he won't live as a Christian. He's got to put himself under that authority. He looks at this man and says, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. This man said, Well, yeah, we're waiting on the Messiah. Uh, the, the, the Savior of Israel is going to show up and kick these Romans out of Jerusalem and going to set up a kingdom. The Lord answers this way. How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said, By the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord. And whence is he then his son? Common people heard him gladly. You know what he asked? This man had everything he could, could have known about the law. But then he said, do you know who the Lord is? Do you know who the Son of David is? Do you know who the Messiah is? You know what this man was missing? He had all this truth, man. But you know what he was missing? He just didn't know Christ, though Christ was standing right in front of him. For all that you know about Bible, and you probably do, man. I've had people tell me, I know more Bible than you'll ever know. And they're probably right. But do you know the one that wrote it? I know you probably grew up in church. You know, you know all the rules. You know how to say amen at the right times. You know how to, you know how to raise your hands. You know all the words in that red back hymnal. But do you know Christ? Is it possible for a man to be that close to the kingdom of God and turn around and walk away from it? Judas kissed the door. The rich young ruler was lacking one thing, but he went away sorrowful. And this scribe, was at the very, you know what Paul says about the law? The law was our schoolmaster. To what? To bring us unto Christ. The law ends basically in three ways. One is in a sentence of guilty. It ends in condemnation. 
Paul said that the law was given that every mouth would be stopped and the whole world would become guilty before God. God gave law, both the law of commandment to the Jews in the Old Testament, the law of conscience in the New Testament, or for the Gentiles. You know why he gave that? To show us that we're sinners, that we can't live righteously in and of ourselves. That's why our conscience condemns us. That's why even do what we can to try to live right, we still find ourselves living wrong. It gives us a sentence of guilty. You know how the law ends? It ends in the satisfaction of God. You know how that Old Testament sentence, uh, system ended? All those lambs were given. Then one day, John, beholding Jesus coming, saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away. I said, taketh away. Not covereth. Which taketh away the sin of the world. Paul said, Christ has become the end of the law unto righteousness unto everyone that believeth. You know where the law leads us? It leads us to realizing, I'm guilty. I'm a lawbreaker. And there's a penalty for my sin. The righteousness of God has been transgressed. And until those charges are answered, I walk under condemnation. I don't have to wait for condemnation. John chapter 3 says, I'm condemned already. But guess what? There was one that came and took my condemnation. Bore my sin. Became my sacrifice. Became my sin. And answered where justice called. Hey, listen now. Mercy. Mercy answered. (laughs) And you know what the end of the law is for us? It's the system of grace. The Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created into Christ Jesus, unto good works, which we were before ordained to walk therein. The Bible says... (laughs) That I love this. I'll read this one verse and I'll be done. In Acts chapter 13, you know what they said? And this is, this is the thesis of my preaching this morning. In Acts chapter number 13, they looked at the crowd, Jews and Gentiles, and said about Jesus Christ, Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, through Jesus, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. The law couldn't do that. Your good works can't do that. Your self-righteousness can't do that. Isaiah said your self-righteousness is like filthy rags. Your best 30 seconds is enough to send you to hell. My best 30 seconds is probably worse than yours. Hey, but you know what's preached through this man, Jesus? Forgiveness of sins. By Him all that believe are justified of all things which He could not be justified by the law of Moses. You know what? He says, you know what the law is all about? Loving the Lord with all your heart. Loving your neighbor as yourself. And he says, you know why you can't do it? Because you don't know Jesus Christ. Hey, you know what? You may not be far from the kingdom of God. Don't die at the doorstep of salvation. Come on in. The king's waiting for you. The new, all you have to do is recognize yourself a sinner. Ask Christ to forgive you and save you. Believe on him. Trust that he'll do it according to his promise. You can be born again into the kingdom of God. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. You don't have to wait for the first note to be played. I invite you to come even now. Father, I pray that you bless this invitation, that your people will get help. And Lord, if there's one that does not know you as their Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they believe upon you. Lord, I love you and I thank you. I ask it in Christ's name with our heads bowed.